Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Centuries and Saints. This is Scott, your host for the podcast, and this is our second to last episode of season two, looking at the attributes of God. And so today we are going to be covering one of the attributes of God that has caused quite a bit of theological debate and tension in the church, and that is the issue of God's sovereignty. Now, I'm excited for this episode. I'm excited for the things that we're going to be covering. So please stay tuned. Enjoy this episode. I hope it encourages you. And no matter where you land on the spectrum of the extent of God's sovereignty, I pray that this episode helps you better trust our Lord. Uh, Really quickly, we're going to do an overview of what we talked about last week on our Attributes of God series here. And then we're going to uh, jump into today's topic. Okay, so last week we talked about the justice of God. Uh, The fact that one of God's attributes is that he is just. We discussed what justice looks like from two distinct viewpoints. Uh, The first was his justice against sin uh, that relates to his holiness and righteousness and how that justice will be revealed uh, on the day of judgment towards non-believers in the form of his wrath and towards believers in the fact that his son suffered in our place and took the payment for our sin. So his justice means that for us as Christians, we are accepted into his arms and into his presence uh, because Christ justly paid the sin debt that we owed. So justice has been served. And so we've been forgiven. Now, secondly, we looked at God's justice uh, from the perspective of his heart for justice and peace uh, to be enacted upon the earth. Okay, so the desire to help the oppressed and to be a voice for the voiceless and to love and serve and vindicate the poor and the widows and the orphan and the afflicted, all of that comes from God himself. God loves justice and he hates injustice, okay? And so we talked about that, how that is seen all throughout the Old Testament. Just read, well, anywhere in the Old Testament, really. In the Torah, God commands his people uh, not to oppress the foreigner amongst them, the widow, the, the orphan, the afflicted. Uh, and we read in Isaiah, I believe 58 last week, <clears throat> how God rebuked his people very harshly because they were fasting and offering sacrifice to him. And God says, I don't like this because the fast that I have chosen is for you to be a voice for the oppressed and to love and vindicate and help uh, the helpless amongst you. Okay, and then we see it in the New Testament, the entire book of James in context is uh, James rebuking the rich in the church who were oppressing the poor. Okay, that was one of the, well, one of the main themes anyways of James. Uh, not the entire thing, but that is one of the primary themes of the book of James. And that colors sort of the whole book. And so uh, we saw that last week, the justice of God. And the ultimate point there is that nobody has ever nor will ever, received injustice from the hands of God. God has never been unjust. God cannot be unjust because he cannot deny himself, and that's a part of his nature. So what I want to do next week, I want to wrap up this Attributes of God series by just sort of doing a review of all that we've done these last few months. That's next week, Lord willing. But today, what I want to do is I want to cover the topic of the sovereignty of God. Now, (laughs) Man, this is one of those topics, I mean, you could take a year and dig into this. There is so much here, and there's just no possible way that I could cover all of that um, in one teaching. And there are so many different, you know, shades and colorings to this whole thing. 
Uh, there's so many rabbit trails to go down here that it's just, it's overwhelming, to be quite honest with you, to study this and then to teach this. So what I want to do, uh, I want to approach this topic from a slightly different perspective than the one from which I've discussed the other attributes of God. So basically what I'm, I want to do is I'm not this morning necessarily going to advocate for or against um, the different shades of the orthodox understandings of God's sovereignty in the church. Rather, what I want to do is point out a few excesses on each side of this argument and just sort of hopefully frame this for you guys in a more biblical approach, okay? And then you can work out the little details um, of everything in your time in prayer and in the word with the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do is I want to start off this morning uh, by looking at sort of one extreme side of the spectrum here. Okay, and this, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, again, the first thing that comes to most of your minds, or well, probably most people's minds, uh, whether for good or bad, is Calvinism, you know. And that's, again, not what we're doing here this morning. Uh, But there is uh, a strain, I think a lot of people have called it like a hyper-Calvinist strain. Uh, And it's not traditional predestination. It's not traditional Calvinism. It's not even what John Calvin himself taught. Uh, nor what the other reformers taught. The classic discussion of predestination when it comes to the reformers in church history simply has to do with salvation, okay? Uh, There's a whole other branch of church history, or pardon me, of church history, of uh, the theology of God's sovereignty known as theodicy, and that deals more with uh, God's role in the coming to pass of, of certain events and different things. And that's more of what I want to talk about this morning. There's a strain of, again, theodicy, this theology of how is God, you know, sovereign over the events of the world. And there's a strain of that sort of on the extreme uh, that is actually rejected even today by mainline uh, Calvinist theologians and scholars. And it's sort of this hyper, hyper Calvinistic thing that's basically nothing more than fatalism. Uh, And it says, And again, this is a very small minority of people that believe this, but it's this sort of strain that says God is completely sovereign over the elect and the reprobate, so there's no point in sharing the gospel because the elect are going to be saved, the reprobate are going to be lost, and it doesn't matter what we do. So don't even worry about missions, evangelism, sharing the gospel. Now again, this is the vast, vast sort of fringe, wacko minority that believes this kind of thing. There have been very, very small denominational church movements Uh, over the last few hundred years that have embraced this. But, I mean, it's such an incredibly minute number of people that it's barely even worth mentioning. But I want to mention it because it does exist. And it's one of those things where you take something too far. Okay? Uh, We listening here, you know, we're, we're believers. We're Christians. You know, we would all, I believe, affirm the classic Orthodox Protestant uh, thing that says that God is sovereign. God is eternal. The triune God is eternal. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He always has. Nothing takes him by surprise. There's nothing that happens uh, in this universe that is outside of God's control or his view. He is sovereign over all things, okay? Now, there's mystery as to how that all works out. What does that mean? Uh, Does God ordain everything that comes to pass? Does God simply allow things to come to pass? Uh, how does that work? You know, theologians have debated this, I think, basically since, you know, the beginning of the church. And, uh, you know, it's a debate that continues today. And again, my point this morning is not to try and solve that debate. Rather, it's just to present to you some dangerous extremes on both sides. Uh, simply because, 
you know, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we need to understand uh, what the Bible does say and what the Bible doesn't say. Okay. And so when we talk about the sovereignty of God, on one hand, the Bible knows nothing of fatalism. Okay. Uh, Fatalism is something that you see more in Islamic theology based on the sovereignty of God. Um, And that's kind of like sort of a hyper-Calvinism taken to its extreme logical conclusion. But again, that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, the Bible, again, does teach that God is sovereign. And Paul says in Ephesians, God ordains all that comes to pass. I'm just going to let that scripture sit there because that's what it says. All right. Now, you can decide how that all works out and figure that out on your own, but that's what the scripture says. Okay. But as Christians, we reject fatalism. Okay. We know that sin and evil, that's not the will of God. Okay. We know that God is good and in him is no darkness at all. God is not the author of evil. Um, God is not the cause of sin in any way, shape or form. And we know that from scripture. So then the obvious question becomes, well, then how does that work out with God's sovereignty? Because God knew that all of that would happen. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. How does that work out? I don't know. Uh, there's mystery there. <laughs> okay. Never sacrifice what you do know on the altar of what you don't know. So what do we know? We know that God is omniscient. He knows all things. He's eternal. He's sovereign. Absolutely. We know that he's in control of the universe, ruling over his creation. We know that he is good and holy and that in him is no sin and no darkness. Okay. We know these things. So how all the mysteries of this works out together, we may not understand but we need to just let the scripture say what it says, okay? So I wanted to address that one side of it, again, sort of that hyper-extreme fatalistic view of sovereignty, which the Bible does not teach, okay? We know, for example, we see, for example, in scripture, now again, God is sovereign, and he knows what he's going to do, and his purposes cannot be thwarted, and they come to pass. The Bible is clear on that. The Bible is also clear on the fact that if we don't pray, and if we don't have faith, that a lot of times God won't act, okay? We see in the Gospels uh, where Jesus went back to his hometown and he marveled at their unbelief and it said that he did no mighty works there because of their unbelief. Uh, There's things in scripture where we see where God says, look, uh, I think it's in Ezekiel. I believe it's Ezekiel where he says, I look for someone to stand in the gap, you know, to fill in the breach. Uh, And it says God lamented that he couldn't find anybody to pray. Uh, because he was going to do something. Um, now, again, how does that work? I mean, God is God can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign, he's eternal and infinite, and God is not bound by or limited by us. We don't control God. You know, our faith doesn't make God do anything. You know, he chooses to respond to it, but our faith doesn't force his hand or make him do stuff. Not at all. God can do whatever he wants. How does that all work? Man, I don't know. That's a great question. There's mystery there. And I just think that mystery should cause us to worship God even more and just praise him, you know, for his goodness. (laughs) Okay. So that's one side of the spectrum I wanted to address. Now on the other side, and this is where I want to put more of our focus because this is a movement that is growing in popularity within the church today, uh, especially here in America. And it's growing in popularity, especially amongst younger, sort of more trendy hip pastors. It's something I've noticed in my study Um, And it's a position called open theism. Now, open theism is the belief that God knows all of the possible things that could happen in the future, but that he doesn't actually know what will happen with complete certainty. Okay. 
Now, that sounds strange, and it is, because it's not within the pale of orthodoxy at all. Um, It's a relatively new teaching that's only been around for a little while. Um, Nowhere in church history do we see this as being something that's been accepted by the church and by Christians in popularity. Um, Okay, there are a number of problems with this kind of theology, okay, with open theism. And I want to just, this is kind of the complete opposite of fatalism. Open theism is, is man's free will on steroids, okay? And basically what open theism says is that in order for man to truly have complete free will, God can't know the future. Because if God knows the future, then it's already settled, and man doesn't actually have free will, because he has to, whether he knows it or not, do those things that God has already established. So open theism tries to get around that problem by saying the only way that man can honestly, truly have free will is for God to not know the future. All right? Now, Open theism says that God exists within time like we do, okay? It says that God experiences time. Now, he experiences it in a different way and on a different level, but open theism says, uh, and one of its main proponents who I've listened to has said this, that he believes that God exists in linear time like we humans do. Um, Now, it goes without saying that there are a number of very severe problems with that, Uh, I think the most obvious problem with that being that if God exists within time like we do, that means that God is not eternal or outside of time, okay? Which presents an entire different host of theological problems. That also has a huge problem because it means that there is something in creation that exists, time, that God did not create. And that's another huge problem because then that would mean then that God is not actually the creator of all things. Um, Now, obviously that's unbiblical and very dangerous, okay? Uh, But again, I point this out because this kind of teaching is growing in popularity um, in in a lot of churches today. It diminishes also, and this is the second point I want to make, the glory of God in the gospel. And in open theism, the atonement of Christ on our behalf is watered down and it's changed. It's greatly diminished. In one example, I've, I actually heard an open theist pastor teach this um, not too long ago, that w- when it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf, that what God the Father did, and this is what this guy taught, that God the Father, knowing how the devil reacts and responds, knowing how sinful human beings react and respond, he arranged circumstances and had Jesus do and say certain things that would give the greatest likelihood of his ending up being crucified. Now, it's completely insane. That is absolutely ridiculous. That's heretical and unbiblical um, to say that God the Father didn't know for sure if Jesus would be crucified for the sin of the world, but he arranged circumstances and manipulated events to push everything towards that being the most likely outcome. And then it ended up working out that way. I, I actually heard someone teach that, no joke. Now, that completely goes against everything in Scripture, where, you know, Peter in the book of Acts says that Jesus was crucified according to the predeterminate forecounsel, the counsel and the foreknowledge of God, that that was the plan of the triune God from all of eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past made this decree that the Son would incarnate and give his life as the sacrifice for our sins. I mean, that's orthodox, biblical Christianity, and it's just amazing that that's being challenged today. Um, But again, this is a relatively new thing. So again, it it waters down that sense of God's sovereignty. Basically, that God is not sovereign is 
open theism's sort of natural logical conclusion, that God isn't sovereign. Now, in another way, open theism diminishes the atonement of Christ, okay? And I want to read a a quote here by Dr. John MacArthur. Um, It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it's really worth the read. And I feel like it's important to read this just to give you guys sort of a view of of what's going on with open theism. Again, because this is gaining traction amongst, like I said, particularly younger pastors, and uh, it's kind of becoming sort of the hip, trendy thing now in evangelicalism. Open theism and the, the pastors of open theism have changed the view of the atonement and in the view of the cross. And I want to read this, okay? So here's Dr. John MacArthur, quote, According to the new model view, or open theism, if Christ suffered for our sins, it was only in the sense that he absorbed our sin and its consequences. Certainly not that he received any divinely inflicted punishment on our behalf at the cross. He merely became a partaker with us in the human problem of pain and suffering. According to open theism, The cross was not a judicial payment, but merely a visible space-time expression of how Christ has always suffered because of our sin. In other words, according to open theism, the atoning work of Christ was not truly substitutionary. He made no ransom payment for sin, no guilt was imputed to him, nor did God punish him as a substitute for sinners. None of his sufferings on the cross were administered by God. Instead, according to open theism, Atonement means that our sins are simply forgiven out of the bounty of God's loving tolerance. Our relationship with God is normalized, and Christ absorbed the consequences of our forgiveness, which presumably means he suffered in the indignity and shame that go with enduring an offense. So what does the cross mean according to open theism theologians? Many of them say Christ's death was nothing more than a public display of the awful consequences of sin. So that rather than offering his blood to satisfy God's justice, Christ was merely demonstrating sin's effects in order to fulfill a public perception of justice. Other open theologians go even further, virtually denying the need for any kind of ransom for sin altogether. Indeed, the entire concept of a payment to expiate sin's guilt is nonsense if the open theists are right. Thus, the open theism theologians have rather drastically remodeled the doctrine of Christ's atonement, and in the process they have fashioned a system that is in no sense truly evangelical, but is rather a repudiation of core evangelical distinctives. It is surely no overstatement to say that their emasculated doctrine of the atonement obliterates the true meaning of the cross. According to open theism, the cross is merely a demonstrative proof of Christ's willingness to suffer. And in this watered-down view of the atonement, he suffers alongside the sinner rather than in the sinner's place. It is my conviction that this error is the bitter root of a corrupt tree that can never bear good fruit. Church history is rife with examples of those who rejected the vicarious nature of Christ's atonement and thereby made shipwreck of the faith. End quote. Again, I know that I've utilized most of my time this morning to warn you guys about open theism Uh, But again, as we're talking about the theology of God's sovereignty, I really, really had a burden that I needed to do that. Um, Because again, this is not simply a, you know, sort of an in-house debate about, you know, the sovereignty of God and its practical aspects, like, you know, Calvinism or Arminianism. This is a completely new model of looking at God that saying that God basically isn't eternal, uh, that he did not create time, and that he functionally quite really, as far as the future is concerned, doesn't know any more than we do. Um, that's sort of a rewriting of the very nature of God, of the Bible. And, and you know, anyways, I just felt like I needed to share that with you guys this morning, uh, you know, to 
to just give a warning on that because it's a, it's a big deal, you know? And again, all the intricacies of God's sovereignty and how that all works out practically, it's mysterious. There's a lot of mystery there, you know? And personally, I have a, a, you know, a, what I would call a robust theology of God's sovereignty, but I certainly do not claim to have completely figured everything out. Uh, there is, again, God's ways are so much higher, you know, than our ways, as he says in his word. Uh, at the end of the day, my whole exhortation and encouragement to, to myself, to all of you, is simply to just take the scriptures as they come, let God speak for himself. And, and when there are things that we don't understand and we can't seem to reconcile, don't sacrifice what you do know on the altar of what you don't know. When it comes to mystery, just let God be God. You know, believe what he says in his word, take it on faith, let the word speak for itself, and just let God be God. And I would encourage you guys just to do that, you know? And so, I uh, hope this has been a blessing to you guys and giving you some stuff to think about. And again, Lord willing, next week we're going to wrap up this series uh, on the attributes of God with sort of an overview of everything we've done these last few months. So, man, may the Lord bless you guys today. Thank you for uh, spending this time with me. God bless you. Amen and amen. God bless you. And thank you for listening today to Centuries and Saints. As always, please go to the iTunes store, leave us a review, give us a rating, spread the word. It really helps the podcast get out and bless more people, which is what we're trying to do here. In addition, we are also on the Spotify platform and on Stitcher. So you can access the podcast through any of those media that you choose. And again, thank you for getting the word out. Thanks for praying for us. And may the Lord bless you. And I hope that this episode has been a blessing to you and to your faith. Now, next week, we are finishing up this season on the attributes of God of the podcast, season two. So next week is it for season two. And then I'll have some announcements next week about where we're going for season three and beyond. So may the Lord bless you this week. And until next week, for Centuries and Saints, this is Scott. God bless you. Glory's on display.